Are we good, Lee? We good? Okay. By the way, I want no pressure. Lee told me before the meeting when I tried to slip him some money to turn the cameras off that he was going to make me look like a Greek goddess. I said, dude, you got a magic wand on you or something? I'm not sure he was telling the truth. You know, his lips were moving. I am already qualifying myself as I speak by making a nest up here, okay? Um, yes, I'm your Al-Anon speaker today, but I'm not well, okay? I'm not well, but I'm a whole lot better. I just love that everybody gives a date, okay? And so I'm going to give you a date. I don't ever give a date. But I'm going to give you a date. Uh, my name is Robin Vernon, and I'm a very grateful Al-Anon. My serenity date is August 7th, 2021 at... Probably 12.15, 11.15. That's all I got for you. I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, my first sponsor was a black belt Al-Anon, and she taught me that I was going to have a slip every day. Every day I was going to know best about something, usually something that was none of my business, and I was always going to mind somebody else's business. And so the problem lies between here. And uh, so I don't give any kind of date. I can tell you when I came to my first meeting, but uh, I don't. Because for me, time has nothing to do with anything. Now, it is a date that I feel so grateful for. And I will tell you, I, it's been a minute since I've been behind a podium. And it feels so good to be with my family of choice. I want to thank Gail and Kristen. Uh, Kristen has taken really, really good care of me. Uh, I'm very grateful. It's, it's just such a privilege to be here to be asked to do this kind of thing and to feel comfortable in the family, you know? People, I've never, I, I may know a few people in here. I know Beth and, uh, you know, I've met a few people, but to be able to stand up here, um, a little old woman from North Carolina and talk to a group, there's another one. He's not a little old woman though. Um, but, it, it's just, I don't know, it's just crazy to think I fit here like I have never fit anywhere in my life. And, and amongst mostly alcoholics, I imagine, I don't know, how many Al-Anons do we have in here? Okay, a sprinkling. A sprinkling, thank you for coming. Proof, 
I think proof that I think Al-Anon is a little bit harder than AA to get to at times. Uh, you know, because I could rationalize and justify a lot of inappropriate behavior because look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. All right. Um, I also want to thank Carissa for picking me up at the airport and not scaring me a single time getting me here. Uh, that's a good thing. All right. So before I get in any trouble up here, I, I would like to take a moment. Um, when Lois Wilson was asked what she did before the moment of silence, before the serenity prayer to start the meeting, she said she invited the God of her understanding to the meeting. So if we could take just a moment of silence, and I would ask each and every one of you to invite the God of your understanding to the meeting. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so my home group is the Help and Hope Al-Anon Family Group in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, we meet at 5 p.m. on Saturdays. We are meeting face-to-face, but the church requires masks, except when you're talking. (laughs) I know. It's just perfect for an Al-Anon group, isn't it? Uh, So we just wear our mask and keep them on because we know better. Anyway, we know best, quite a few of us. Um, And, you know, they too are my family of choice. Um, My family of origin did not have an alcoholic in it. My, My mom and dad were teetotalers, and for anybody in here that doesn't know it, drinking is a sin. That may or may not be the most important thing I say this morning. And, you know, I didn't know till I'd been in Al-Anon a few 24 hours that I have multiple alcoholics on each side of my family of origin, terminal alcoholics. So my mom and dad were affected by the family disease of alcoholism, And so I was affected at birth. I was affected at birth. And what I call that today is the isms of alcoholism. And that is the internal spiritual malady that I didn't know I had. I didn't recognize it. I knew I felt like so. it's such a common theme. Tommy did such a great job last night. That's one of the best talks I've ever heard. And... I missed the previous speakers, but I've heard Beth and Polly before, so I look forward to having a meeting with them in the car later. But um, anyway, it's such a common theme about not fitting. And, And I didn't even know I didn't fit until I got here and fit. You know, I didn't because I had zero self awareness. Um, some of the symptoms of the effects of the family disease on me, it was rebelliousness. I mean, I can guarantee you I was not part of the solution anywhere, okay? When my mom and dad told me, drinking is a sin, don't do it, 
at a certain age, I immediately started figuring out how to do it. And I did a lot of it. I did a lot of things that people told me not to do just because they told me not to do it. Okay? So, and, and that's kind of a common theme also. I would, I would not listen to anybody at any time about anything. I could be a little sneaky, but um, it, it's, it was just part of it. And um, I acted out a lot. I was in trouble a lot. Uh, my original, the, the reason I came to Al-Anon was because my husband, David, was an alcoholic. And I want to tell you about our first date because I, I think it sort of explains my disease. My disease. Uh, we were, I had known him since junior high school. We probably saw more of each other in the guidance counselor's or principal's office than we did the classroom. Because uh, he was a budding alcoholic even then. Uh, and I didn't know this, but in, in high school, when we were juniors in high school, he invited me to a party. And I accepted. We went to the party. And I thought we had a great time. On the way home, he was driving me home. And it, we were not far, maybe five miles from the party. He scared me to death getting me home. And I was so grateful to get in that driveway in one piece. And then he asked me out for the next day. And I accepted. (laughs) Perhaps someone that was not affected by the family disease of alcoholism wouldn't have accepted the second date. I'm the oldest of four girls and all four of us married alcoholics. We are way beyond fluke and coincidence in the pattern there. Um, and I, I'm sorry to say, I, none of them are in recovery. I do have a sister still living in the active disease, and I fear for her. You know, my first sponsor would say, our disease can be just as terminal as alcoholism. Alanons get parts taken out. The stress without a program is immense. Um, so I just pray, you know, I have to accept her choices. So David called me. Well, I accepted. And then the next day, I waited for him to come pick me up, and he didn't show up. He stood me up on our second date. He called me later that afternoon, and I cussed him out and hung up on him. That was it. I mean, after all, I've got boundaries. <laughs> I didn't even know what a boundary was. Uh, and in about 15 minutes, the doorbell rang, and there he stood. And he said, you want to go to Tanglewood? I said, let's go. And that started our journey. So David and I did not fall in love. We fell in sick. We fell in sick. Our illnesses attracted us to one another, and they, they prospered. Our illnesses prospered in our relationship. We were married at 23, and we were separated at 29. Uh, he lost a job. 
And, and David, David was a white-collar alcoholic. I mean, he never missed any work. He never missed any work. David would get drunk, and I would miss work. That's how it... Because I was so obsessed about what he was or wasn't doing. I was doing the search and find thing. You know, I mean, it just took every bit of energy I had to try to control something I didn't know I couldn't control. Okay? Um, so he walked out of a job that he had worked very hard to get at R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, which was the place to work in Winston-Salem at that time. But he got another job very quickly, and I went in the bathroom, and he was drinking beer in the shower at 7 a.m. And that just made warning lights flash and bells ring, and so I detached. I also didn't know that word. I detached in anger. I kicked him out of the house and changed the locks. I'm not recommending that if there are any newcomers here. Okay, I'm not recommending that, but I was a long way from Al-Anon at that point. He went through all of his friends and then ended up with his family, and then they put him in treatment on his birthday. And he called me from that treatment center, and he said, I'm right where I need to be. I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And... Then he, he said, would you like to come to the family program? I said, what's that? He said, well, it's called Al-Anon. I said, what do they do there? He said, well, the, the family members come to Al-Anon to recover like we go to AA to recover. And I remember saying, recover what? I mean, the only thing I was missing was a drunken husband, and I wasn't interested in recovering that. <laughs> I don't have a problem. He was the only problem I had. And I'll tell you, it was nine years later that I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting only because Another treatment center put me in a van and took me. I don't know if I'd have had the courage to go. Uh, some of us are sicker than others, and I'm some of the some, for sure. So David came all the way in and sat all the way down. He became a member in good standing in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the miracle happened. The miracle happened. He was not the same man. And I really liked what I saw. So we reconciled. We bought a new home and moved back in together. And, you know, we have something in Al-Anon called the three C's. I didn't cause it. I cannot control it. And I cannot cure it. And I was pretty clear that I couldn't control it and I couldn't cure it. But I remember thinking in this new house, well, I'm going to keep this house cleaner. I'm going to cook dinner every night. We have a new walk-in closet. All my shoes are lined up very neatly. Just any number of things. Have a new job. Make more money. And I know the subconscious thought at the end of each one of those phrases was, and he won't have to drink. And he won't have to drink. So on a subconscious level, I did feel like I caused it. 
I did feel that way. Now, I had a fourth C. I, I didn't cause it. I cannot control it. I cannot cure it. But I sure did contribute. I sure did contribute. David came home to an old idea for seven years in sobriety. And that was me. I remember saying to him, why are you still going to those meetings? Why are you still hanging out with those people? You hadn't had a drink in over five years. I was so ignorant about the disease. So very ignorant. Because I didn't have a problem. I like what Sue D. from Yorba Linda, California says. The little alcoholic that came and 12-stepped her Keith on the way out the door. He turned around and pointed at her. He said, you're just as sick as he is. And he cannot stay sober coming home to an old idea. Can't happen. It has to be family recovery. So after seven years of sobriety, David injured his back at work. He went to his family doctor, and he hooked him up. And I came home from work, and he was in a blackout. And it never even crossed my mind that this would happen, that he would ever. And and he didn't, he wasn't drinking, but I I heard mixed stories from David, of course, because he was in a blackout. I don't think he remembers what he gave him. But that started about two years of the worst insanity I've ever lived in. And I will tell you, I was a big part of it. I was a very big part of it because I had no program. I did a lot of search and find, had a duffel bag in the basement. It was David's duffel bag, but I knew a lot more about what was in it than he did because I searched it at least once every day. Okay, this was an obsession that need to know. You know, that need to know is a need to control. That's what it is. And so I searched that duffel bag. And honestly, he always put whatever it was in the bag. I'm sure he had stuff in other places. Not the golf bag, because I searched it too. But in that duffel bag. And so I would take it, whatever I found in there, and I would say, gotcha, gotcha. Don't you think you're getting anything over on me? And then I would try to make him tell the truth. Y'all know that one. Never told the truth. You know, I heard a speaker say, an Al-Anon speaker say, that the alcoholic doesn't pay any attention to what the Al-Anon says or potential Al-Anon. They're watching what we do. They're watching what we do. And in my case, I was doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. But the Al-Anon is not really paying any attention to what the alcoholic's doing. They just want him to say the right thing. Him or her, honey, I won't do it anymore. Honey, I'll go back to those meetings. Honey, I'll call my sponsor, whatever it was. And so that was what I, I, I was trying to achieve. I didn't even know it. So I thought it would be a good idea to write his doc, call his doctor and explain the situation. 
the doctor was his mother's next door neighbor, so it it was not a good situation. I called him. I explained, David's got all these pills you're giving him in an unmarked Tylenol bottle, and he's, he's just mixing and matching, and he is crazy. And he thanked me. He said, I won't be giving him any more prescriptions. I appreciate you calling. I don't know how many times he actually took my call. <laughs> but uh, I do clearly remember writing him a letter when he would no longer take my call. I, I'm going to explain it to him one more time. And when I look back on that, who do you think the doctor thought was crazy? <laughs> Seriously. He's like, man, if I was married to that woman, I would be needing some for my nerves. <laughs> I'd be needing a little help sleeping. Um, so, you know, I, I did a lot of crazy things. I could go on and on. Um, I had started having some physical symptoms by this time. And uh, I was having some jaw pain. So I went to the dentist and told him, my teeth are hurting. I need to be checked. And so he checked me out. He said, there's nothing wrong with your teeth, Robin. They look okay today. Do you think you grind your teeth? And I was like, no. No, I don't grind my teeth. And so then I had some ear pain. So I go to my family physician and he, he checked my ears. He said, Robin, your ears look okay. They're okay today. Do you think you might grind your teeth? I was like, no. No, I don't grind my teeth. A few weeks later, back at the dentist, I need some x-rays. I'm telling you, there's a problem with these teeth somewhere. You just missed it. Let's do x-rays. X-rays. Your, your teeth look good today, Robin. Are you sure you don't grind? I do not grind my teeth. I was like a tightly wound clock spring, you know, just waiting to go off because I had absolutely no tools, no tools whatsoever for dealing with this disease, none at all. On... December 29th of 1992, the only reason I can remember that date is because it was my daddy's birthday. Something changed for me. It was a God that I did not know doing for me what I could not do for myself. And I heard David down in the basement at 6 a.m. on that Saturday morning. And I heard him in a 30-gallon trash can. I was like a a ninja. I could hear him anywhere in the house. But he wasn't in the trash can at the walk-in door. He was at the trash can in the back of the basement where he kept bird seed. He fed the birds and squirrels. So I knew it was there. He wasn't feeding the birds at 6 a.m. But I did not run down there. And search him fine to this. I don't know. I don't know why. Can't explain it to you. It's a God thing. Wasn't a Robin thing. That's for sure. Later that afternoon, he passed out on the couch. I went down to the bird seed, lifted the lid, and there were lots of little 
airplane vodka bottles, empty. And so I took one and walked upstairs, sat down across the den from him, and very gently said his name. Now, in the past, if it was 3 o'clock in the morning, I found something in the duffel bag, the bird seed, the golf bag, didn't matter. I'd be coming up those steps like a bull. And if he was asleep in the bed, which he generally was, he didn't creep as much as I crept. I was a creeper all night long, you know. (laughs) He'd be coming out of that bed at 3 o'clock. I didn't know where he was sleeping, but I could sure tell you where he wasn't sleeping, okay? But I just held that bottle up, woke him up gently and held that bottle up, and I said, I can't do this anymore. If you want help, I'll go with you and support you. And so he chose to go into an outpatient treatment facility. And I went. I went. Now, I want to be crystal clear on why I went. I went to be sure that he went. And I went to be sure that he heard what he needed to hear. And I told him what that was all the way home every evening. They put us, well, and I'll tell you, after I got through telling him what he was supposed to have heard that night, because we were all together in that same room for four hours, six to ten, the first five days. Family members and patients. It, it was a squirrely bunch. I don't, it really was. And I would say, did you hear what she said tonight? Can you believe that he tried to? Can you believe that they did? Talking about him and them all the way home after telling him what he needed to hear. My first sponsor used to say a lot, Robin, I don't get any better at talking about him and them. I was holding a, a magnifying glass. That's, that's what I was holding, a magnifying glass. I didn't know how to do anything else, and David was like a bug that I had under it. <laughs> and so was everybody else, actually. So the third night we were there, Our counselor, who'd been in there the whole time, was sitting in front of me in the circle. They'd given us these notebooks, and he said, turn page 47 in your notebook. So I very promptly and perfectly turned to page 47 in my notebook. I was looking good in this room. And I looked over, and David was struggling. So I just reached over and helped him get to page 47. I know, isn't that sick? I had no idea. And when I looked up, that counselor was looking at me, and the minute I saw the look on his face, I knew that was the look that I had on my face, talking about him and them all the way home. And that look said, God, you are a sick one. And my mind opened just a crack, just a little bit, just enough to let God in a hair farther. And I thought, I don't believe I'm okay. 
I don't believe I'm okay. My identity depended on being okay, on being right, on being in control. If I needed one word to describe my illness, it would be control. Coincidence that they put us in a van and took us to my first Al-Anon meeting that night? I think not. I think not. And for me, I came home. I knew immediately, this is where I fit. These people were talking about the secrets I'd been keeping for a long time. They understood like nobody else did. Nobody else did. And so I immediately asked questions. And they said, the more meetings you're gonna go, you go to, the quicker you're going to feel better. And so I started going to seven to nine meetings a week. I went to every meeting I could. Now, you know, I, they said, get a sponsor. And I said, well, what's that? They said, that's somebody that's going to walk with you through these steps. Somebody that has a sponsor, uses a sponsor, and has worked the steps and will help you. I was much too smart to need a sponsor. (laughs) So I kind of floundered around for three weeks until I understood, yeah, this this is a different language. This is a different language. So I got a sponsor. And uh, for the first time in my life, I started following good orderly direction. I'll never forget the first suggestion she made to me. You know, they don't tell you what to do, but they'll make some strong suggestions, won't they? She said, Robin, it would probably be a good idea if you didn't say anything to David that was judging, accusing, or blaming. Jab. Judging, accusing, or blaming. So I went home and I held everything up to that. Is this judging, accusing, or blaming? All communication on my part ceased. (laughs) And I do not exaggerate. I had no idea, because I... I was holding a magnifying glass. I had no idea that everything I'd said to this wonderful man for years was judging him, accusing him, or blaming him. Everything that was wrong in Robin's world was David's fault. That's how distorted my thinking was. It was... So I went back to my sponsor. I said, look, we've got a communication problem at the house. What can I say? Let's approach it from that direction. (laughs) And she said, you can say it if it's loving, true, and necessary. But it must be all three. Well, I could sure get true and necessary, but I could not pull off loving. Uh, To be honest with you, I had a murderous heart. I did. I didn't want to be married. I didn't want to be with David. My mom and dad told me sometime after I was in Al-Anon that their greatest fear had been that I would take David's life and spend the rest of mine in prison. 
And there are women all over the world that have done that. All over the world. They were not blessed enough, lucky enough, whatever it was, to find their way into a family recovery program. My sponsor said, I want you to call me every night. I mean, I didn't have anything in common with this woman. She was like a fairy princess, you know. I had picked out a really gruff and mean dual member, a double winner, you know. And no, God gave me a fairy princess. But I did. I called her every night. And it may be quick on and off, but I get it today. When the crisis came, and it did, it always does, I could pick up that phone, muscle memory. She put me to work in the steps. I cruised through step one, step two, step three, step four. I mean, in, at about three months, I was all the way to step four. I mean, you know, this is not such a big deal. I didn't get it. And I didn't have a problem with step four, but I'm going to be honest with you, I was never going to tell this fairy princess everything about me in five. That's the one I was going to skip. So I was working on that four step, and she would say, how are you coming on that? How are you coming on that four step? I was like, good, good. I'm making great progress. <laughs> Had no idea what I was doing, okay? Uh, I had ended up settling on the seven most painful events in my life, which honestly ended up being an inventory of people I thought had hurt me. Um, You know, it was just another list of grievances. But, you know, I was doing the best that I could with the light that I had to see by at that point. So another week or so she'd say, how are you coming on that four-step, making great progress? doing really, really well. And she asked me again, and I made the mistake of telling her the truth. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And she said, well, I think you might need to process. Well, I'd never heard that word. I said, I think so. I think so. And she said, well, come over to lunch this Saturday, and then we'll process afterwards. So I went over that Saturday, and we were sitting at lunch. The phone rang. It was another Al-Anon, and I heard her say, I'm going to have the ringer on the phone off after lunch because I'll be taking a fifth step. And I thought, I wonder who's coming over to do a fifth step after I get done processing. She tricked me. She tricked me. She did it on purpose. And you know, I had only known this woman for about three months. And to think that she would do that for me, she didn't do that to me. She did that for me because she knew more about me than I did when I walked in those rooms. And I see these people, they come to me, the people that come to me for sponsorship, I'll usually say, hmm, bless your heart, because they are just like me. 
They, that God sends me people just like me, and I get it. I know more about them than they know about themselves when they come in here. But watching the journey is just such a blessing, such a blessing. So I did my, my first fifth step, and David relapsed about a month later. Again, I think God did for me what I could not do for myself because I do not think I would have survived relapse had I not dumped that first load of garbage. It was not my searching and fearless moral inventory, but it was a load of garbage that I'd been carrying for a lot of years. So I, I want to... <laughs> I want to talk about, the first of all, the, the transfer on the first step. You know, I'd done such a really good job on this first step that I had been given David the name and number of an AA sponsor I had picked out for him. <laughs> Some of us are sicker than others. It just happened to be my sponsor's husband. little information exchange, you know, that need to know. And um, he never made the call. I would ask, David called you, Ray? David called you? No, I never heard from Robin. I mean, Ray, I'm sure, is telling Glenda, God, would you tell her to stop doing that? But anyway, during this relapse, David missed work for the first time. Okay, and he was he was bad. His illness had really progressed in just this three months. And my sponsor said, "Robin, the elevator is going down, and you are both on it. All you've got to do to choose recovery is step off when those doors open on every floor. All you got to do is step off." And she suggested, because I, I mean, I wasn't making meetings. I was having a hard time getting to work. She suggested that I leave my home for a week and come stay with her, which I didn't like at all. But I could tell that I really was going over the fence in left field. I could, I could feel it. I did not have the tools to survive this relapse. So as I was getting ready to leave my home, I knew David was near this bottom I had heard you all talking about. And I said, I'm going to give him that number one more time not giving up yet. And, and I wrote Ray's number on a yellow sticky note and I was standing beside my car in the basement garage. David's standing right there. I had the door open and I handed him that. I said, here's Ray's number. Call him. He can help you. He can help you. David was in a five-day blackout, okay? He knew nothing. He knew nothing. But here's Ray's number. And I was driving, it's about a 20-minute drive to my sponsor's house, and I was raging. Gosh, look at, you know, look at all that I'm doing. Oh. <laughs> Al-Anon salute there for you. <laughs> look at all I'm doing, and he has relapsed. Imagine that. And about halfway over, I looked down, and that sticky note was on the bottom of my shoe. 
And that is when I knew here, in my heart, what you all had been telling me. I'm not qualified to help him. I do not know what he needs. I'm not qualified to help him. I had an old, old timer at one of the meetings I went to across the hall, a longtime sober AA member. He said, Robin, David has just as much right to drink himself to death as you do to come in that room and sit in a chair every week. Oh, man, that made me very angry. But I shut my mouth, and today I know that to be true. I'm not qualified to help him. So I came home in about a week. I didn't know what was going on for him, because when I made that transfer on that first step, I put down that magnifying glass, and I picked up a mirror. And I started doing the real work, the real work, the real work. And, you know, it it took at least two more fourth steps, fourth and fifth steps, for me to get to my searching and fearless moral inventory. One of them strictly anger work, uh, where David was concerned. I I didn't know anything about resentment, Um, and I, I was full of it. I was full of it. And, you know... When I'm acting on a resentment, I lose my mental and emotional sobriety. That's what happens for me. When I have a slip, I lose my mental and emotional sobriety. I remember my sponsor saying, Robin, I'll be so happy when you allow yourself to have extended periods of peace of mind and serenity. I remember thinking, what is she talking about, allow myself? Look what he's doing. (laughs) Yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice. So, when I made the transfer on the third step, um, David worked as a starter at a golf course, so he was out there at dark o'clock on Saturdays. And one Saturday... He called and woke me up at dark o'clock, which didn't make me any too happy. And he said, will you do me a favor? Oh, wait a minute. I've missed it. Hold on. I didn't talk about the slip. Okay, so I had a slip. That's losing my mental and emotional sobriety. And what happened, I came home one day. I I don't know what we were talking about. David was in the basement. I parked the car. I was halfway up the steps. And I looked down at him, and my disease said, it still talks to me, by the way, it said he's been drinking. And then the next thing it said was, it's in the birdseed. And, and I think because that was my last find, because my sponsor had said, look, if you're searching a duffel bag, a golf bag, whatever, you're having a slip. You've lost your mental and emotional sobriety. So she had also told me, before you act out your illness, you pick up that phone and you call me. So I right quick ran upstairs, got on the phone, 
Uh, we didn't have cell phones. I'd get the walk-in phone. I'd go in the walk-in closet and close the doors. I said, David's been drinking. And she said, really? How do you know? And I said, I can just tell by looking at him. She said, well, what's he doing? Nothing. I said, and it's in the bird seat. I'm sure she's going... I mean, she knew a screaming Mimi slip when she heard it. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Robin, your higher power is going to let you know what you need to know when it's time for you to know it. See what you need to see when it's time for you to see it. And hear what you need to hear when it's time for you to hear it. And I already knew better than to talk to her when she was in that frame of mind. (laughs) So, you know, we... We saw each other in a meeting every night. I talked to her at least once every day. So this was a Thursday. Honestly, I don't know how many times I saw her or talked to her and explained, you know, I must explain it to her one more time. David's having a slip. I know he is, and it's in the bird seat. I need to search the bird seat. And all she ever said, and I mean, she said nothing else. I knew the conversation was over. Your higher power is going to let you know what you need to know when it's time for you to know it, see what you need to see when it's time for you to see it, and hear what you need to hear when it's time for you to hear it. So that Saturday, David called me at dark o'clock from the golf course and said, will you do me a favor? And I was not happy that he had awakened me at such an ungodly hour, but I said, what? And he said, Will you feed the birds for me? And he proceeded to send me down to this bird seed trash can that I'd been wanting to search for about four days. Now, if that's not God calling on the hotline saying, you may search the bird seed now... Another fifth step moment, I dug much deeper than I needed to to feed the birds. There was nothing in there. There was nothing in there. God's plan and God's timing are perfect. 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 You know, three answers to prayer. Yes, no. Wait a while. Wait a while. Well, I do better with a flat-out no than a wait. I do not practice delayed gratification very well to this day. But boy, my life is better when I can wait. When I can wait. You know, I know my will comes with a sense of urgency. God's will comes with a calm assurance. Yes, if I can wait for that calm assurance. So... November 22nd of 1993, David came home drunk. I had dinner cooked. Again, we hadn't had a meal together in months, in months. I can't tell you how he, whether he was drinking or not during his time frame because I was holding a mirror. But he came clearly drunk. I had cooked dinner. I was waiting on him to get home from the golf course. He, he walks in clearly drunk. We sat down, had a meal together, have 
no idea what we talked about, but I can tell you what we didn't talk about. The fact that he'd been drinking. You know, I had been taught, God let me know when to speak up, when to shut up. If it's time to speak up, let it be your words. And so my mouth was not connected to the doorknob for the first time. After we'd finished dinner, I'm at the sink doing the dishes. He's still at the table with this kind of deer-in-the-headlights look because I'm doing something different, you know. And I had been taught it's okay for me to state my truth if if I do it just because I need to. Not to make him do something or keep him from doing something, but because I need to state my truth. And I turned around and I said, I need to let you know that I'm uncomfortable with the way you are. Didn't even sound like me, but that's all that came out of my mouth. He immediately started his part of our old tapes, you know, because we did and said the same thing over and over and over for years. Never any different results. He said, well, I've not been drinking. I said, stop. I'm not going to discuss it with you. I just need to let you know how I feel. Finished the dishes, went and sat down on the sofa. And in about 20 minutes, he came and sat down beside me. And he said, I drank today. I'm sorry. I've hurt you. The minute I stopped trying to make this man tell the truth, what does he do? (laughs) Just proof again that Robin is powerless over the disease of alcoholism and the alcoholic. He sat right down and told me the truth. What happened for me was that in the first time in all my selfishness and self-centeredness, I looked at him and I saw in his eyes how badly his drinking hurt him. Him. It had always been about me. And I was blown away. I said, David, I love you and I want you to be okay, but I can't help you. You know where your help is. And I left for my meeting. Two years later, I went to an open AA speaker meeting that I attended regularly. And David was the speaker. I didn't even know. And I will never forget what he said. He said, when, my, when I came home drunk on November 22nd of 1993, and my wife did not go crazy like she always had in the past, I didn't have anything to look at but me. And I did not like what I saw. Now, what I picture for me during that time frame is... I'm standing over him with my hands on my hip doing that Al-Anon handshake. (laughs) And David's higher power is behind me tapping me on the shoulder. And he's saying, excuse me. Excuse me. That young man needs my help. And if you'll step aside and stop playing God, I'll help him. And I go, oh, no, God, you go help somebody that doesn't have me to help them. 
I got this. The biggest difference between me and God, he never thinks he's me. He does not get confused about that. My ego still gets me a bit confused about it at times. That, that character defect of knowing best. Knowing best. He picked up a white chip that night. And uh, once again, he came all the way in and sat all the way down and became a good active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. David and I had several good years of recovery together. But in 1999, we did choose to divorce. And we did that in recovery. We used the principles of the program. We talked to one another like we wanted to be talked to. We treated one another like we wanted to be treated. And I'm so grateful for that. We would still see one another. We would go out and have dinner and shoot pool. Um, Best friends. We loved one another very deeply. In 2009... David called me from another treatment center. And that's when I began to learn about pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. And how baffling, cunning, and powerful, and patient this disease is. During the first relapse, my sponsor, when I asked her what to do about him drinking again, she said, you treat him like an honored guest in your home. I beg your pardon? (laughs) She said, you treat him like an honored guest in your home. I didn't know how to do that back in 93, but I knew how to do that in 2009. So I treated David like an honored guest. And and we would still see one another. Um, His disease had progressed. He made almost 16 years. Lots of, lot of that time I had to love him from a distance. When I didn't hear from him for a few weeks, I would know that he was back out there. My disease talked to me. My disease said it would be okay for you to call him. It would be okay for you to drive by his house and check on him. But I knew it wouldn't be because I'm not qualified to help him. Every time I talked to him, I said, David, you're a good man. And you deserve the very best that God has to offer. I love you. In uh, September, 
of 2011, he came by the house. I hadn't seen him in a while, and uh, he had been ravaged by the disease. And he told me, he said, I don't think I'll survive another relapse. And I said, David, you are a good man. And you deserve the very best that God has to offer. I don't want you to die. I love you. And the next month, a dual member in my group called to let me know that David had died from the effects of terminal alcoholism. Now, the miracle in all that... is that I treated him like an honored guest. I took no more of his dignity. I took no more of his dignity. I was part of the solution. I was part of the solution, not part of the problem. A couple years ago, I had a a leak in the big sewer pipe in my basement. And uh, gosh, it was Sunday. I thought, man, this is going to hurt. <laughs> this is going to hurt my pocketbook. But I called the plumber, and he came out. He had to come and work and see what he needed. Then he had to go get what he needed. Then he had to come back and work some more. And when he was done, I said, How much do I owe you? He said, Nothing. I said, nothing? He said, you're David Vernon's Robin, aren't you? I was like, yes, yes I was. And he said, he saved my cousin's life. He's still sober today. No charge for you today. You know, there's just been a lot of miracles, um, a lot of wonderful things. I'm truly blessed in so many ways. Today, I'm self-supporting. You know, I had 20 jobs my first 18 years out of high school. (laughs) Stellar employee. You know, some of them are still operating, doing it wrong. I, I had a review. Uh, I retired actually December 30th of, of 2019, but I had a review just before that. And, and I was a, a medical assistant and a histotech at a dermatology office. And uh, part of my duties were infection control and OSHA coordinator. They called me the sheriff. 180 degrees from sick is still sick, okay? (laughs) This review was very positive. It was a positive review, but the owner of the practice put on there, I'd like to see Robin be less officious with the other medical assistants. I never heard that word. 
So I had to Google it. Now I'll tell you, we have something in Al-Anon called the five M's. Five M's, managing, manipulating, meddling, martyring, mothering. These are not things an Al-Anon needs to do, okay? So I googled officious, and the first definition was meddlesome. (laughs) I was like, oh, surely not. And then the second definition was offering unsolicited advice. Some of us are sicker than others. So that began my journey of letting go on a deeper level in that workplace. You know, I I just, so many lessons, so many lessons. Um, Today, I I still attend meetings regularly. I still sponsor. I still have a sponsor. I still use a sponsor. I do my work. Uh, I've been attending, um, a, it's called Hot Chicks. It's actually a bunch of AA women and me. They call me their resident Al-Anon. My friend Heidi Jo, I'm going to quote her here because, you know, I, anybody that knows Heidi Jo knows Heidi Jo Mycrit. She said, Robin, you're the only sick-ass Al-Anon sick enough to be coming up in here every week. <laughs> So there you go. These women have taught me so much. So much. It's it's a big book study. We read from the big book. I love it. I love it. The courage, the courage of sober alcoholics continues to amaze me. Somewhere around page 350, it might be 351 or 352 in, in the big book, it says... All my problems today I create when I break, in, break out in a rash of self-will. That, that sentence was written for me. You know, I'm in your book. I just am blessed enough not to have the allergy. That's it. You know, I'm in your book. Um... I'm so grateful for this design for living. You know, I I can't tell the difference between a tragedy and a miracle. I can't. It was a tragedy that I married an alcoholic and had to come into a place and attend meetings for that reason. Well, that's the miracle. My life is so much better today than I could even have imagined. Even have imagined. I can suit up, I can show up, and I can be part of the solution. The way I look at it, my very worst day today, very worst day today, is 300% better than my best day pre-Al-Anon used to be. And that just tells me I'm right where I need to be, I'm with who I need to be with, and I'm doing what I need to do. Thank you for my program. (laughs) 